This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I'm joined by two guests. They are co-authors. It's Mike Steele, who's a professor of mathematics education at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Craig Hoon, who's a secondary mathematics teacher at Holt High School in Holt, Michigan. And they're going to be talking about a book that they've written together called A Quiet Revolution, One District's Story of Radical Curricular Change in High School Mathematics. So Mike and Craig, thanks so much for both of you being here today. Thanks for having us, Sam. Thanks, Sam. So uh, before we get into that book, um, which has kind of a fascinating, uh, intriguing title, um, as a lot of people really think about making curricular change and shifting things in mathematics, especially at the secondary level, which is one of my particular interests. But first of all, just to get a little bit of background on each of you, I wanted to ask uh, where you did your professional preparation. So uh, Mike, maybe to start with you. Sure. I mean, I was a middle school math and science teacher for a number of years um, out in the state of Maryland. And following that, I did my doctoral work at the University of Pittsburgh under the direction of Peg Smith um, and have been at both Michigan State, which is where Sam and I know each other from and Craig and I know each other from, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee at present. All right. And Craig, how about you? What's a little bit of your background and how you uh, came to be prepared as, as a mathematics teacher? Yeah, I did my undergrad work at Michigan State University. I grew up in mid-Michigan, and so that was the largest university in the area that I was interested in. And so I spent some time there um, with desires to be a history teacher um, and ended up declaring my major in mathematics instead, mostly for the coursework. When I got to the methods courses, it was under the direction at the time at Michigan State under Dan Chazen, Uh and we did some work about Uh, how algebra works and what a math classroom could look like. And I was really intrigued by that notion. And I haven't really looked back toward history education since that point. And so I did my undergrad at MSU. Um, My fifth year in the program, which is how MSU is set up, is a year-long internship. And I did that at Holt High School. Um, And luckily, the the following year, they had an opening and, and hired me there. And since then, I did some master's work at MSU and have maintained a pretty close relationship with the TE group since then. Mm hmm and speaking of Dan Chazen, so when you mentioned the work that was going on earlier, was that related to the Beyond Formulas book? Is that, That's how I remember the book anyway. Was that kind of in the mix there as well? That was a little bit before my time, but yeah, he, he okay. did a lot of the work there, but while he was actually in a in an embedded placement at Holt High School. So yeah, part of that, we can touch on this probably later, but part of that PDS work that MSU was connected to Holt High School with, that was all part of that big project and interaction that we had had going prior to 2000 when I joined the game. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so a long history of whole high school, which is actually part of, you know, what this book digs into the different phases and kinds of work that happened and how it continued and has gone on to this point, focusing on curricular change at the high school level, especially. Um, So speaking of Holt High School there in mid-Michigan, tell me a little bit about the high school itself, the setting, uh, the students, and anything that we maybe need to know about this situation so that we can kind of get into some of the issues that the book takes on. Sure. It's a, for Michigan, it's a moderately sized school. We have about 1,800 kids in 9, 12 um, grades. And so, you know, there's not a lot of buildings that are, 
you know, much larger than that, the way Michigan sets up their schools, Detroit and some have larger. But for the most part, we consider ourselves, you know, having a lot of kids from a lot of areas. We are contiguous with South Lansing. Um, and so we have a large border that is pretty much indistinguishable from Lansing when you kind of drive south. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you kind of go farther in our district, it becomes more rural. Um, and then east and west, we even have a, a village that is the farther westernmost point of our district. And so part of it is we have a pretty wide range of probably economic diversity, you know, uh, racial diversity, religion diversity. We have a pretty good spectrum. Um, I would say that uh, that has been changing pretty quickly over the last 20 years that I've been there. Um, It started out being much less, at least racially diverse, and has been getting much more over time. But um, for the most part, um, I'd say we're pretty typical we kind of call it urban fringe school. Mm-hmm. And then this kind of unique feature about Holt High School is this history of being a professional development school. And um, again, just so that we're all on the same page and listeners know, like, what does that mean in the context of Holt and Michigan State to be a professional development school? Yeah, Mike might have some insight into this a little bit, but from my understanding, um, joining sort of the game as PDS was in its sort of already momentum going and flowing from the 90s. But what it essentially happened was there was a large movement um, that Michigan State sort of led the charge in, but it wasn't localized to just Michigan State, but um, to sort of have the analogy might be like teaching hospitals where they can sort of have, you know, working in the trenches places that are connected to an institution of higher learning where they would actually have placements and um, faculty kind of moving back and forth and working together. And so Hmm. that was sort of in full full-fledged and, you know, lots of funding and lots of work and momentum at that moment in time. And so Holt was one of the PDS schools that Michigan State worked with. Um, We're about, you know, 20 minutes away or so. And the faculty from, you know, our department and stuff like that would teach classes at the university with, like, the teacher ed department and people like Dan Chazen and people there would do projects and research at our building. And so there's kind of a synchronicity there of kind of trying to make each other more effective and working harder and things. And so part of it was, is that there was a really dynamic, engaged, professionally trained staff at Holt High School when I walked in there as an intern. And I was like, wow, this is, this is what teaching looks like and feels like. And so, you know, since then, you know, even though the PDS project has sort of slowed down and the funding and that kind of stuff isn't a, isn't a part of our day-to-day work, that, that relationship still lingers in lots of important ways. Yeah, I think that's a it's a really nice summary there, Craig. PDS movement really got started as Craig mentioned um, in the '90s. You know, grounded in the work of the Holmes Group, which had some strong associations with Michigan State, that was looking at how teacher preparation should really uh, be done to be most effective. And so, the Holmes Group and some of the reports out of that group were um, some of the genesis of ideas that we've had kicking around the field for a while, like the fifth year internship um, and like this idea of professional development schools. And I think the the notion behind it was really to make the work of teacher preparation as embedded as it could possibly be in schools. And part of that meant kind of making sure that students had long-term 
really thoughtful and meaningful field experiences within schools with teachers that were going to model a sort of pedagogy that we were teaching at the university, and also that the university faculty would be working side by side with teachers as colleagues. So that was evidenced in what Craig was referring to with Dan Chazen um, and some other folks at Michigan State who would be, as a part of their faculty appointment, would be in schools teaching, in this case, high school kids. Anyone who's familiar with Deborah Ball and Magdalene Lampert's work uh, know that a lot of their work in the 90s derived from a similar sort of situation where the two of them were teaching third and fifth grade math, respectively, um, in an elementary school in East Lansing. So that was really the, the genesis of this professional development school idea is to bring the work of teaching teachers and the work of teaching students very much together in the same both physical and conceptual place. And I should note that while the PDS movement really had its its origins in the early to mid-90s, I've noticed it's it's experiencing a little bit of a resurgence right now. Mm-hmm. I actually got in my email just yesterday um, two brand new titles from a book publisher that were specifically related to the PDS concept and um, mm-hmm. kind of rejuvenating and, and continuing to evolve that idea. So it's something that hasn't really gone away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's people even here at the University of Missouri who have talked about how great it would be to have a partnership with a school like that for the being able to embed things like you were talking about and just having the two-way kind of you know, mutually beneficial relationship. Um, so yeah, I think it's a resurgence. I, I agree. I've kind of noticed that myself. But speaking of your book, so this is from Information Age Publishing, and it's A, a Quiet Revolution. Um, so for this particular book, you know, it it deals with some of the history of Holt High School and that relationship, but then it also goes into some particular issues about mathematics education from the perspective of you two. So I was wondering if you could just talk to us about how did this book start and also how did you two come together to kind of co-author it um, from a kind of academic side and from a teacher side? Well, it started for me. So in the state of Michigan, there was a period of time where they were debating on how to make citizens in Michigan a little bit more marketable, you know, college for everybody. There was a big movement to do that, and they were they were trying to transition out of the manufacturing, you know, sort of mode that was sort of at the time dwindling, and they could sort of see the writing on the wall. And so legislatively, they tried really hard to say, let's up our, let's up our standards so everybody's college ready um, across all public schools, and let's talk about career readiness and Let's really make uh, algebra a requirement for graduating, and everybody has to go through. They actually said algebra two, and at the same time, another group who was also working also said defined algebra two with the new standards as pretty much topics that we all considered precalculus. Mm. And one of our department chairs, Mike Lehman, at the time, he was involved in that group. And so while that was happening, he would come to us at our department and say, "Hey, this change is happening." Everybody's moving, you know, the new standards, the state standards, it's pretty common core, but the state standards are now going to consider Algebra 1 in 8th grade standard 8th grade content, and so they're just going to call that 8th grade math. And so what we call Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 at the high school should now be what used to be Algebra 2 in pre-calculus, if that makes sense. And it was mm-hmm. really confusing for a long time, and so part of the issue was is that we said, oh, okay, you know, Lehman, that makes a lot of sense, let's do that, and so we called our pre-calculus, or actually it was FST was the term that we had at the time, Uh, we called that course Algebra 2 for a few years. And then what had happened was the state required Algebra 2 for all students, so we essentially sort of backed our way into requiring Algebra 2 slash pre-calculus for graduation at our school, and a lot of schools 
either didn't get the memo or were reticent to make that change. So their book publishers or whatever they had didn't really follow through with that. And so most schools kept a course after the school required Algebra 2 course that was going to then go into function statistics, trigonometry, data analysis, things like that. And so we ended up realizing that after, you know, several years of this, we would look and see all the transfers come in. We said, you know what, nobody else really made that change. And so we were at our school requiring all kids to take the equivalent of pre-calculus, sine, cosine, you know, all of that kind of stuff um, to graduate. And this is all of our kids, every student. And we realized that that was not the case. And at the same time, the state legislature was even backing down on requiring Algebra 2 for all kids as part of the graduation requirements. So... I saw that sort of tension about everybody kind of hemming and hawing about, man, could we really do that? And is that really fair? Can all kids really learn Algebra 2? And I said, well, we're doing it. We're, we're a pretty large standard school in the middle of some state, and we're, we're doing it with all our kids. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of working out okay. We have some things to work on. And so I wanted people to hear that story a little bit so that they knew that, you know, the world doesn't explode if you go ahead and just do it and expect it from kids and help them get there. And I kind of turned to my math ed folks that I knew, and I emailed a handful of them, and I just said, do you think this story is worth telling, or do you think there's an audience in the state that an article could maybe, is worth pursuing, and Mike kind of jumped on that and said, actually, I think we could do more with it. And so I can't, I mean, he might be able to pick up the story from there, but that was sort of where it, where it started, and Mike said, I think we can actually do a lot more with this sort of story and what you guys have tried to do that might be more beneficial to more people. Hmm. Yeah, and so to pick up the story from there. Um, you know, when Craig sent this over, I'd been familiar with, with the work at Holt High School even before I came to mid-Michigan, actually reading and Beyond Formulas that Sam mentioned, Dan Chazen's book was part of my own doctoral preparation. So I'd known a little bit about what Dan had done in his classroom, what he was trying to promote within the district. Not long after I came to Michigan State, the, the second volume in, I guess, what now is the Holt Trilogy <laughs> um, came forward which is a book called Embracing Reason that Dan wrote um, alongside Mike Lehman and Sandy Callis that took a look kind of at almost at a 30,000-foot view in a sense of what the landscape of the high school, the district, and the partnerships with Michigan State in the context of teacher preparation look like. So there's, it's a really fascinating read. I think it's a highly underrated book. I'll put in a plug for somebody else's book. Um, <laughs> it tells some fantastic stories about the partnership, how it came about, how it evolved, and there are voices from interns and teachers and faculty members and other staff that have been involved in this whole continuum. Um, so when Craig put this email forward about, hey, there's this thing we've done curricularly at Holt that I don't think we've talked about maybe as much as we could have, I felt like this was a really important message, not just that that they were doing it and that the world didn't explode, um, but also like how that came about. So describing the process of how they made that happen, having worked with high schools and, and districts across the state and country on curricular issues, which is a particular interest of mine, I've seen just how much a curricular initiative or adoption can just hang on a knife's edge that mm -hmm. one staff person can turn over or one administrator can turn over and the whole thing can just turn on a dime. And so the fact that Holt has been doing this work 
and kind of making strides forward and progressing in it, maybe not in an entirely linear fashion, but certainly kind of an arc of of positive change over the past 30 years, I think is quite remarkable and something that we could learn a lot from, um, both in, from a faculty standpoint in the field in math education, and also something that's going to help the teachers who are on the ground dealing with this, trying to be advocates for change in their own classrooms. Mm -hmm. So is that how you would characterize the main goal that you have for the book? Or is that who you would recommend like to kind of pick up the book and read it as people in districts who are, yearning for that change or already trying to do it and are not sure how it's going to go? Um, is that kind of who you would propose it to so that they can see how it does work out or, or what comes into play? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really big audience for the book are teachers who are either individually or as a, a small band of revolutionaries trying to advocate for change in their district. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's the, it's the only constituency by any means, but when we wrote the pieces at the end of each chapter that really press to reflect on what the particular piece of the whole story that we've talked about in that chapter is a case of how it relates to their context and how they might instigate challenging conversations within their own school and district. Like I really see that work as being the most successful when it comes from the teachers. But I think there are also important lessons here for a district curriculum director, for any of us within mathematics education, be it faculty or other people who do consulting and supporting work with school districts to think about how do we move these sorts of challenging conversations forward with a particular focus on high school mathematics, which we know, and and this is kind of the message of Matt Larson and Robert Berry with Catalyzing Change, the new NCTM publication. Mm -hmm. We know high school doesn't move quickly or well or sometimes at all. So how do we push the conversation forward in this particularly challenging context? Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Michael Steele and Craig Hoon, who are the co-authors of A Quiet Revolution, One District Story of Radical Curricular Change in High School Mathematics. So we've been talking about curricular change and it's in the title. And earlier Craig was talking about this curricular change at the course level, like what do we call Algebra 2, when do we get into pre-calculus topics, that sort of thing. But I wanted to also give you a chance to describe some of the other you know, aspects of curricular change so that we kind of really know what you're referring to when you say these changes that are intended to happen or that are happening and how they happen. So what else would you put under that umbrella of curricular change that you touch on in the book? It does, depending on what lens you're sort of looking at, the question can be interpreted lots of ways. So one of the things that I think about is Sort of historically, if I go back to when I started teaching, those of us that were thinking about how to get kids to engage in mathematics, we often imagined our tasks with kids as, so explore, look at a bunch of stuff, see what you notice, and then when we start to notice some patterns, then maybe we can say, huh, maybe that's a conjecture is always true, and then we would try to maybe come up with some generalized proof so we could make a claim about this new feature that we sort of noticed. Lots of our assignments and our, our tasks and our even our worksheets were sort of set up that way. Well, you know, what, you know, basically pattern recognition. And so one of the sort of evolutionary aspects that we sort of point to, I think, in our thinking over time in our department is that a lot of our tasks now, we sort of, I think Marty, our department chair, Marty Schnepp, he read something a while back that refers several times to the logical necessity of 
mathematics and we sort of used that as our rallying cry and thought about what can we do with kids all the time that the logic itself requires the next step, right? We don't have to like conjecture and then see if it happens to be true. We can actually say, well, so if this happens, then that must mean that this happens and that would also require some other justification for other features that must also be true and why they must be true. And so one of the things that we sort of did is we, we sort of purged some of those assignments yeah. and tasks where we had kids think about, you know, try a bunch of things, see what happens and tell me. So kids at the time were saying things like, oh, I noticed that if I put a negative number in the front of this quadratic rule, then the parabola seems to open down versus, you know, and, they, and then we would try to go back later and say, so why must that be the case? Whereas mm -hmm. now we sort of try to develop a sequence of events where that conclusion is inescapable because of course that has to happen if that's what that really means. Mm. I don't know how clear that comes across, but mm -hmm. that's one of the things, sort of things that we tried to sort of refocus our energies on and think about that we thought maybe paid more dividends for student thinking. Yeah. The way that you describe that reminds me of actually a conversation I had at the NCTM annual meeting. I can't remember who it was with, actually, a lot of people walking around there and stuff, but I was talking with somebody about notice and wonder, which, you know, notice and wonder can be a great way to start conversations in certain things, but mathematically, if you ask students to notice and wonder, they will sometimes think that they're supposed to notice what the teacher wants them to notice. And so right. then... They're not really engaging with it authentically. They're just trying to like, I think Mike, you used to call this like, guess what the teacher is thinking? <laughs> yep. Yes, I did. <laughs> it sounds like Craig, or at least the way I'm making sense of how you described it is instead of just saying, please notice something. And then the subtext is notice what we want you to notice. Instead, you're sort of like, hey, let's just actually, let's go through a sequence of problems. And as we think about those, it's going to lead us to another problem. And at the end of it, we will have figured something out. Yeah, an almost inescapable truth, right? At some point, like that, the mathematics is going to lead us somewhere itself. I, I think one thing that I think is a really interesting analysis in the in the book, and this is all fantastic work on the part of Craig and his colleagues at Holt, is really thinking meaningfully about assessment practices and student outcomes and what they mean. Um, one of the most common questions I get when I do work with districts here in Wisconsin um, and I'm trying to move the needle on high school instruction in some way is inevitably we get to, um, so what about the ACT, right? So, so how, how is this going to help us get better ACT scores? And I loathe that question largely because I, I, I don't see that even anywhere near the top of the list of goals I would have uh, for a district and for students, high school mathematics education. Um, but it seems to be this in inescapable loop. I'll have teachers that agree with me on that and they'll say, yeah, but we're really still accountable to this. So can you tell us how it helps you with the ACT? Yeah. And I think one of the stories we share in the book is the, the ways in which Holt staff, when they were confronted with very much the same issue, I think thoughtfully and productively pushed back on it by talking about kind of what do they value as really authentic and meaningful assessment of student learning and how does that work correlate or in this case not correlate uh, to what the outcomes look like on the ACT. So it's really this interesting data-driven approach to advocating for what's good for students. But I think the precursor to that that's really important to note is that you can't do that unless you've really engaged over the course of time in thinking about what are our beliefs about 
what meaningful student assessment looks like and how do we enact those beliefs in the things that we ask kids to do with us around mathematics. And I think part of that came about when we kind of were asked to come up with, this is several years ago too, where they said, you should have you know a common final assessment across their courses. And we said, okay. And so we, it really forced us to talk about, like, so what is it that we want to see from our kids at the end so that if a kid does well on it, we can claim that they must have, you know, been successful in the course and in the content. And so, you know, we kind of took a, a cue from our English friends who kind of give the essay portion of the final exam ahead of time so they have time to grade it and think about it. And then during the exam period, they do some of the other short answer stuff. And so we sort of sold that approach and we kind of give a couple of really big in-depth problems ahead of time that's kind of like what our idea of it is is sort of a constructed response where they have to kind of figure out how the math they know would lend itself to answering a certain you know kind of big real life question that we we posed to them but what that did is that gave us an as a as a department an opportunity to have a whole bunch of student work several days before the end of the term Mm -hmm. and so we've used that opportunity to actually as a community as a group of um, teachers sit together and like grade them all as one large group like well you know half the department will grade um, you know question one this big constructive response thing and the other half will do question two and we just rotate them all through and so we've had tons of really good conversations about what we notice when we see all 500 kids taking algebra all of their work on this particular mm-hmm. task mm-hmm. yeah I think just that whole conversation that you both just had about uh looking at students and thinking about what you really want your outcomes for them to be mathematically. To me, that's part of the revolutionary part of this quiet revolution in your book title, because it wasn't always this way, but I think like in the era of no child left behind. So like in the last almost 20 years or so, it seems like it's really moved towards the districts, district leaders, administrators, and it's now filtered down to a lot of teachers and everything that are really their primary concern is the, you know, high stakes, standardized test scores, whatever those might be in different states and stuff. And it seems like, you know, that is now kind of revolutionary to find a way to still put value in what you think is important for students to be learning. And then you can connect it to the high stakes tests kind of thing, but you're not just completely beholden to the high stakes tests as the only outcome of importance. Yeah, and we actually spent a little time early on in the book um, kind of going through kind of what the major historical contexts have been in, in the policy environment across the close to 30 years of work. So I think there's there's some interesting work that we tried to do in saying this is what the national landscape looked like at this at this particular point in time. And then here's what was going on at that moment of time locally at Holt and how they responded, reacted, acted proactively in many cases um, to some of these broader contextual things that were happening in the policy environment. Yeah. And so speaking of that kind of historical view, you know, a central idea of the book is how do you sustain change with different people across different eras? And so I wanted to take that idea of sustaining change and then ask you about, you know, in a long-term view, what's the next part of sustaining your change? So like going forward for Holt High School, what are some things that you're still working on or that still need to happen to keep the momentum going for the next, you know, 10 years or 30 years? Yeah, well, so a big part of it is handling the, you know, onboarding new staff, trying to, you know, staff recruitment, trying to figure out how we can as as the sort of cast of characters revolves, you know, how, how we can sort of maintain 
the sort of directional focus that we've had. And so part of it is, you know, developing newer staff and department members to sort of find and seek out people who are energized by conversations about the way kids think about mathematics and who want to creatively consider what can we do with kids that sort of pushes the envelopes so that we're not okay with just giving them a formula sheet and having them compute some stuff on a test and saying, good, they learned it. So, you know, that all leads to then you start rethinking, so what about the content? So in geometry, I notice that we have this unit that doesn't seem to go very well. How can we do that? So we just have this sort of recurring conversation, sometimes with new blood and sometimes with lots of other ones, and we just try to go through and kind of, I sort of see our next phase as, you know, reworking some of the courses that we feel like, you know, first couple go rounds are, are decent, but we can now look at it because, you know, as we're pretty clear in the book, it's not like we've done these things and now there's rainbows over Holt High School and all the kids, you know, click their heels learning math and they absolutely love everything. Like, you know, I've got kids who still won't take their earbuds out because they're completely disinterested with whatever I could possibly talk to them about that day. And so, you know, our real next phase is, okay, so for the kids who engage, we feel like we've got a program that really can convince them that it's worthwhile, that mathematics makes sense, and that they can learn really deep concepts and can do some really awesome things, but we don't have 100% engagement. And so what now? You know, we've, we've played around with all of the stuff that we could think of that, you know, Joe Bowler's been doing. We're, we're doing lots of work in that direction, but it's really, I think, got to gotta go to what, how do we get more kids doing more of this mathematics with us? Hmm. So I want to touch on that idea of the rainbow over the school, because I also feel like part of what's happening right now with people who are trying to, and this could even be like private private companies and different people that are, you know, getting involved in school improvement and all that sort of thing. It feels like some of them are really looking for the school that's just perfect and magnificent and has the rainbow over, over top. And they just then want to like duplicate that school everywhere. So, I mean, for me, it seems like, well, first of all, if you think you're seeing a perfect school, it probably isn't. Or if it is, you know, a near perfect school, it's probably because of some sort of student selection and not necessarily because of, you know, that they have perfect instruction or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then even if you find something that seems like it's going well, I don't know why they assume you can just like copy and paste it into other places around um, so I, I like the way that you're speaking about whole high school is that we, we've been working on certain things. We've made progress in a lot of areas. We're really proud of certain things, but we are still working. It's kind of a continuous process. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen examples where we couldn't copy and paste across the hall, right? Like, you know, <laughs> or even from fifth hour to sixth hour, right? So, I mean, it really is so, so dependent on, you know, a really subtle thing you did to start the task, right? Or some really like clever way that maybe I had said something to some kid at one moment, then played dividends later. Like it's, it, it really is a messy, confusing job. And so I think pushing ourselves to think really hard about it is about the best we can do. And I mean, to add to that, there's still this insular kind of component to the work of teaching within schools, like talking about what Craig just said, you know, even, even getting to that level of depth of talking about what happened with a task or a lesson across the hallway that gets into those nuances of, okay, well, how'd you launch it? Okay. So what was the nature of the discourse? Okay. Let's take a look at the student work in your class and my class and see if we can figure out what's happening here. And then when you start to think about across districts, across states, 
we we don't have those conversations in general. Um, and when we do, they're often treated with a little bit of suspicion. Like, I don't know what's going on over there across the, the town borders, the next town over. And I'm going to be a little careful about how much I share with them because, you know, I, I you know, we still got to come out better than them in the state rankings. So there's this, this insular, this guarded nature to the work that we do that, that limits how we've talked about this. And, and the thing I like to say about this is for every problem that a school district bumps into about how do we do block scheduling or how do we move from a published curriculum to a teacher-generated curriculum or how do we do intervention and student support in a way that improves on what we've got? Like somewhere there's a district that has this solved. Uh, we're not saying Holt is the district that has all of these things solved by any stretch of the imagination, but we're trying to start a deeper conversation in part with this book about what we do and how we do it in the interest of supporting all students and schools and districts in having the conversations that are right for them and getting beyond this idea that I'm shamelessly stealing from an administrator who I heard talk about it at the state math conference here in Wisconsin of, of NIH, not invented here. Hmm. This idea that if, if somebody else came up with it, well, it's not going to work because we didn't come up with this. It's not invented here. There's plenty that we can learn from the work that districts are doing around these complicated sets of issues around the teaching and learning of high school mathematics. And I think it's high time that we did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, so to connect back to my earlier comment, you know, even though the success of a perfect school uh, can't be copied and pasted, we can absolutely learn from other schools. And if we see something that a school has worked on and made some kind of progress on, then a conversation should happen and other people can learn from that. It's So that's a different thing than a copy and paste. It's a, oh, we could learn from you. That's the shift. And I think that's kind of how you're both talking about it. Mm-hmm. And from successes and missteps and, you know, just the conversation that's had, I'm not entirely sure that, you know, whatever could be copy and pasted or could be learned from or could be even even make sense to do. But that conversation about why was that important to you and what were you considering when you did that? How did that happen? That I'm sure is generalizable. Mm -hmm. The book is A Quiet Revolution, One District's Story of Radical Curricular Change in High School Mathematics. Uh, and Mike Steele, Craig Hoon, uh, the co-authors, thanks so much for taking the time to speak about the book. Of course. Well, thanks for having us, Sam. I appreciate it. And I do have one final question. Uh, this comes also from Michigan State University. So my friend Aaron Brackenecki, who um, both of you might know, but he, uh, he was there in grad school with me, and he would always ask guests, uh, what would you do if you were not in math education? So I'm going to put that question to both of you. If I wasn't in math ed, I actually worked for um, a bowling alley in my hometown from the time I was 16, and then I'd come back on weekends and do some in college, and I still drive back about a half hour um, weekly to still league bowl with a lot of the guys and people that I've known for a long time. And so I'm guessing that if I was not going to be spending my time thinking hard about teaching mathematics, I would probably be running back and setting pins and getting balls and getting people rental shoes. <laughs> You could also just say professional bowler and shoot for the sky. That's true. Yes, absolutely. I'll go for that. Yes. <laughs> How about you, Mike? So I, I have kind of two answers to that question. And the first I know will resonate with you, Sam. And, and I recently learned it resonates with our um, 
AMTE executive director, Tim Hendricks, who I work Mm. closely with being on the board and being president elect of that organization right now. Tim was actually uh, a secondary band director Mm. for a short time. And being a musician myself, I could have easily seen myself going in the... uh, band and orchestra director, theater director direction. Mm-hmm. Um, although as a tip of the hat also to my friends and colleagues back at Holt High School, um, my, my more recent pursuit being um, brewing beer. And I learned a ton um, from many, many, many weekend sessions with some of Craig's colleagues at Holt um, who are outstanding brewers that mm-hmm. helped me uh, hone my craft. And, and certainly that's that's kind of the Wisconsin answer here since... Uh, <laughs> Every other person is a beer expert in in one way or another here. So those those are the two things I could see myself doing if I weren't in math ed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again so much uh, for speaking with us. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Sam. Thanks a lot, Sam. It's been great.